Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Promise, a podcast about healthcare that delivers on our promise to know you, care for you, and ease your way. On this podcast, we will talk with healthcare professionals and hear stories of compassion to help you navigate the world of healthcare with dignity, care, and humanity. I'm your host, Nancy Jordan, Chief Mission Integration Officer, and here with me today are Barbara Euler, Manager of the Providence St. Vincent Adult and Adolescent Partial Hospital Eating Disorders Program, and Milagro Ayala, Communication Specialist, Providence Health. On today's episode of The Promise, we are talking about eating disorders and learning to be comfortable in your own body. We want to help educate you about this disease and provide thoughtful advice for anyone who cares for or loves someone with an eating disorder. Welcome, Barbara and Milagro. I'm really looking forward to our discussion on this important topic. Barbara, I'd like to start with you. Your work in behavioral health, specializing in eating disorders specifically, can you tell us a little bit about you and your work at Providence Health um, and then move into the different types of eating disorders? Sure. First of all, I want to say it's really been a privilege to do this work. Providence St. Vincent in Portland has had an eating disorder program since the mid-1980s when there were really not very many evidence-based models for care. Treatment was primarily inpatient medical and psychiatric stabilization, followed by outpatient treatment. So you can imagine in the ensuing 40 years, there's been tremendous growth and change as research has pointed out more effective treatment strategies and So to fast forward to now, um, in Portland, Providence has a partial hospital program for adults, one for adolescents, and then a supervised living component of the program for adult female patients. And partial hospital is a level of care that is really in between hospitalization and outpatient treatment. So patients are first evaluated to make sure they're appropriate for this level of care. And then they participate in a program about six to seven hours a day, including eating meals here. And they work with a team of professionals consisting of psychiatrists, dietitians, and therapists. We always include families. That's a standard of care set forth by the American Psychiatric Association. And treatment is is generally, it's typically not short term. It's typically many weeks in duration. And we're really helping to stabilize patients and get them ready to continue their recovery and outpatient uh, treatment setting. So in, in terms of types of eating disorders, I'm going to just mention diagnostic terms, but I um, want to first of all mention that there are diagnosed eating disorders and dysregulated or disordered eating all on the same continuum. So if you think about the diagnosable eating disorders, those are kind of a slice the dysregulated or disordered eating that we all probably encounter in our daily lives. But the the difference is that 
the diagnosable eating disorders really um, impair people's physical health, uh, leads, often leads to malnutrition and a lot of psychological distress for the patients and the families. So I think when, when eating disorders are brought up, most of the population thinks about anorexia nervosa. It's an eating disorder that we treat. There's the restricting type and then a binge eating and purging type. And when you think about it, the binge eating and purging is, is psychobiologically driven. Any um, living organism being starved for periods of time tends to seek out food. And so often with people who struggle with the binging and purging type, uh, they, it's been preceded by a period of pretty severe caloric restriction. And then bulimia nervosa is when people have binge eating episodes. And these are not just overeating or not just indulging on feast days and holidays, but a pattern of, of moving toward food and eating an amount of food that most people would definitely consider unusual or abnormal in a short period of time, usually within a two-hour interval. And as you can imagine, there's a, a great deal of shame and secrecy that uh, accompanies that. And there's purging types and non-purging types. Binge eating disorder is a when the binge eating occurs, but is not followed by an effort to restrict or uh, purge. And then there's a newer category called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And this has some significant differences from anorexia and bulimia. There's typically not the body image disturbance. Um, this might be picky eating that people never grow out of. Uh, it could be people who are afraid to eat because they're afraid of, of vomiting or maybe they've had a choking experience and that makes it very difficult for them to eat. And then there are diagnostic categories that just you know, people don't always fit into these discrete diagnostic categories. So when there aren't neat categories, but people have symptoms that cause significant distress and physical complications, then um, there are unspecified categories for their diagnoses. You mentioned the 1980s as sort of the the decade of the the launch of discovery uh, and research mm -hmm. and treatment towards you know understanding and approaching eating disorders. I in my mind was doing the math, and I was a teenager in mm -hmm. the 80s, and I do remember, uh, and I attended an all girls school, and so I do remember. You know, we'd be concerned about a girl that was sitting you know across the room in science class, or but none of us knew. We didn't know what it meant. We didn't understand it. We were all dealing with our own 17 magazines, you know, the mag teen magazines and, and, and trying to understand our own developing um, body image. Um, so in my mind, and I'm wondering if for many of our listeners, um, eating disorders is a teenage disease. It's a teenage girl disease. Is that true? Given all the research now that we've done and we know more. 
Well, there's certainly, um, it's clear that there's, that's a significant transition time from childhood to adulthood. And it's a vulnerable time in terms of developing your identity and self-concept and um, social relationships and values. So we do still see that that is a time of vulnerability, but it's not just a girl's illness. Um, probably 20 or 30 years ago, we treated boys in our treatment program about every year and a half. And now it's unusual that we don't have boys or men in both the adult and the adolescent program. And we also know that older men and women are vulnerable to developing eating disorders at other points in their lives. Everyone's story is different and the vulnerabilities stack up differently to, to set off an eating disorder. And that's something that I think as people enter recovery, they, they try to understand. But we, we also know that we don't approach recovery from the standpoint of you have to understand this before you can change. The conventional belief among professionals is we're going to help you change these behaviors and retrospectively you will develop an understanding of of how this may have served you. There are so many learnings and I am learning so much from you already. And it's just so hopeful that the healthcare industry and particularly the work of Providence St. Joseph Health um, is really focused on the best, um, sort of the best practices in approach to recovery and treatment. Uh, I would like to to invite Milagro into the conversation because Milagro, you have a story about a, a family member, a very close family member that struggled with an eating disorder. Would you mind sharing with us? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my mom actually had an eating disorder. Um, what I think is my entire life is that she had it, but it really wasn't discovered till I was about 13 that she actually went to a treatment center, but then she just suffered all her life. And she was more of a, um, like a binging and purging. So a lot of my childhood memories are of her actually throwing up was a lot of things. And looking back now, I remember noticing like marks on her hands from making herself throw up and things like that. Milagro, just a couple of questions. Thank you for sharing this story because I, I can imagine that was very difficult to see your mother struggle. Uh, did the family ever try to intervene um, or approach her or was it something that everybody just felt like it would be better if we just kept quiet and just sort of did our own thing? Yeah, I was very kept quiet. So I think looking back at like family videos and things like that, I think it probably was most noticeable when I was about two years old. And then everyone kept quiet about it. I think no one really talked about it until when she went to treatment. And it was really because she had lost a significant amount of weight and got really sick. And she was really malnourished and fainting a lot. And that's when people started stepping in and then, you know, put her in treatment from there. But before that, it wasn't anything that people talked about. And I think 
for my mom's situation, I think she was very much a caretaker of our entire family. So it was really that, you know, if they brought attention to it, maybe then um, their needs might not have been met because she was just, you know, the one in control of everything. It wasn't until it was the very end that like something's wrong, something's going to happen to her that people needed to step in, which was really too bad for her. Because if she would have gotten care earlier, you know, she may, you know, have changed her mindset or gotten help earlier. Mm-hmm. Was there, uh, when the time came where she did receive treatment, um, was the family involved? Were you able to participate in that in that treatment and healing? Yeah, and I remember, like I said, I was very young, um, but I remember that it was very difficult at that time to find a treatment center for someone of her age. Um, And I even remember when she was in treatment, she was very unhappy because it was all teenagers that were in treatment with her. But we went to a lot of family meetings and kind of like how Barbara said that the family's really involved in like dinner time and things like that at inpatient. And that's what I remember that we um, had to go to like family therapy sessions and things like that inpatient, which really helped because I mean, a lot of my memories of her healing during that time was in those sessions that we had. Barbara, to that point, if uh, someone who would, didn't fit sort of that stereotypical idea of what have you know an eating disorder um, sort of demographic is, um, would someone be able to let's say it is a mother of young children or teenage children, or, you know, or an elderly person? I appreciate how you um, brought in the idea of vulnerabilities, points of vulnerability in our lives. If someone um, that doesn't sort of fit that you know that kind of teenage idea. Um, goes to treatment, would they find a place? Would they feel comfortable? Is there a place where they would find community and, and maybe community is not part of this, but the families, would they, would they experience something similar to what Milagro's mom experienced or has it changed? Well, certainly at Providence, we don't, we don't exclude patients from treatment if we think they can benefit and they're assessed as appropriate for this level of care. So I can tell you that our treatment group right now in the adult program consists of a couple of males. We have a couple of women who are in their 50s and 60s. And then, you know, it's true, as as Milagro is pointing out, there are younger women, um, probably college-aged or early career women, I think the barriers are, at least from our program, not that we wouldn't admit these individuals, but um, just the social challenges of having young children that need care when you're the primary caretaker. Um, I've seen a couple of young women recently who really are interested in entering the program, but they're young career women and they're self-supporting. So they haven't built up savings where they can take a extended period of time off to devote themselves to their treatment. So I think that the barriers are probably lessening, hopefully from um, Milagro's mother's experience, but there are still formidable barriers that that um, exist in people's lives. I mean, sometimes distance is a problem. 
Well, with so many uh, aspects of our healing ministry and what we do in, in serving all of our patients, especially those who are poor and vulnerable, we are perpetually looking at all of those determinants, all of those other possible barriers or factors that may promote or inhibit their ability to heal. Um, so this is, it makes sense that this is another, um, you know, that, that this is something that um, would require that comprehensive look and team approach to ensure that, you know, we're, we are meeting the needs of those who come to us for their care. Milagro, um, I'm assuming most of the children in the family um, are now adults. And I'm wondering what has been the uh, sort of the impact of what you all experienced with your mom growing up on the adults now or the adult children uh, and their own image and their own approach to a healthy body image and their relationship with food? You're correct. Yeah, we're all adults now. I'm the youngest of four. And um, I think growing up, food was always in our life, you know, we, I came from a Hispanic family, so food was always around. Um, I can't speak for my siblings, of course, but I know that everyone does struggle, you know, with body image or diet because, you know, like a lot of binge eating is definitely involved. However, for myself, I actually, as Barbara was saying with this new diagnosis of eating disorder, I myself am very afraid of food. Um, so for myself, I, you know, consider myself having an eating disorder in a way because I don't like to try new things. I'm afraid of it making me sick. And just that's something that I've struggled with my entire life. And I really think it's because of um, the impact that I've my mom had on me from, you know, such a young age, whereas my siblings, they were a lot older than me. They're the closest one in age is eight years older. My mom's you know, eating disorder really affected me the most because I was the one who saw it more than anyone else. And, you know, it's a struggle even with that. Like people just don't understand it about like my fear of food. So even like going out to dinner and things like that, I have to tell the whole story. Like this is why I'm like this, which is really difficult for me to, you know, meet new people and things like that. Mm, it's such a complex, complex disease. Definitely. It's got so many tentacles and it affects so many, as, as do many health issues. However, this one, it dawned on me and Milagro, you sharing your experience as an adult and your relationship with food, it makes me think that, you know, it, unlike perhaps other, I don't know, other, I, I don't want to use the word addiction, but other, you know, other sort of, uh, I guess, I guess addiction, I don't know, you, you have to eat. You have to, you have to develop a relationship with food. Mm -hmm. And perhaps I'm saying something that's very, very obvious, but you know, to those um, of our listeners who are trying to figure out, well, why doesn't my loved one, why don't they just eat? I mean, they're hungry. Yeah. Uh, Barbara, you had mentioned at the organ, the, the human or the living organism naturally gravitates towards food when they're hungry. So why don't they just eat? I don't understand. Um, but it's so much more complex than that. And I know we don't have time to get into the complexities of treatment plans, but what is the, the, the loved one supposed to do to, if they notice something? First of all, what signs would they be looking for? And Milagro, you shared, you know, kind of some things that you've noticed, some in retrospect about your mom. But, you know, first, Barbara, I would ask you, what, what would we be looking for? And then what do we do as loved ones or care you know, providers? Well, I think you would look for changes in the 
individual's approach to food. If family meal times are a pattern and somebody starts being absent from family meal times, you might see physical changes like weight loss or you may not. Um, I think social isolation or pulling away from social situations where food is involved. You might see changes in exercise patterns, might see a preoccupation with food and dieting content. Oftentimes we see people who aren't really nourishing their bodies appropriately, but then they become obsessed with cooking or baking or food shows. So I think the responses or the changes can be varied actually. And what I think is most important is to really acknowledge the problem. And this again sounds like, I don't mean it to sound like simplifying things, but I think that this whole topic in families can become so tense that parents and loved ones feel like they're walking on eggshells if they bring it up. They're afraid to bring up a problem or acknowledge this because they don't want to push the individual further into the disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we hear time and time again. I think becoming informed yourself. I'm so grateful, Nancy, that you pointed out that this is a complex problem because one of the things that the patients hate is when this is oversimplified to it being only just about food or about right. vanity yeah. or it's so much more complicated than that. And I think if you just understand the battle that people have inside themselves, there's the healthy part of themselves that wants to recover. And then there's the eating disordered voice in their head that is, this is known and familiar. It seems safe. Um, and it's become, for many people, a habit and a habitual way of life. So I think acknowledging the problem, becoming informed, staying connected, eating disorders like other addictions really do thrive in isolation, and then seeking professional help and really um, finding help, which is very challenging right now, even in an urban center like Portland, where I work, there just seems to not be enough outpatient therapists or people who specialize in this disorder. So it is really challenging to find the help that you need. On the other hand, there are organizations like the National Eating Disorder Organization. They have a website. And I, I think that that kind of... Um, support can be very, very helpful. And there's probably online communities for family members, chat groups yes. and where they can connect. And yeah, so so we're still a lot better off than we were in the 1980s yes. when we didn't have what we have. So in terms of the research and the best practices. All right, I just saw the Barbie movie. <laughs> So Barbie being the epitome of standards for women. And, you know, when I look at, you know, 
playing with Barbie as a child. And, you know, of course, the movie was full of tongue in cheek, you know, parody of this image mm -hmm. of this, this woman that, um, you know, and talking with about it with a friend, you know, if Barbie, whatever those uh, memes that went around of Barbie, if she were an actual human, what the proportions would be, what she would look at, look like. Um, so, how much do we know now about um, the portrayal of women in the in the media, for one, in in movies and in you know um, uh, magazines and, and well, not magazines so much anymore, of course, but um, social media is is the biggie, and social media now has all of these filters and these beauty filters, and even you know when we're on Zoom or team meetings, there's a there's a soften feature to make you appear softer. I just can imagine there's going to be some filter to make you look slender. You know, I don't know, but how much of those are a threat? to um, to anyone in terms of their body image? Well, I, I think that nobody working in the field would minimize the social and cultural impact of social media. I think it's a matter of really helping educate ourselves and the people around us that we have to think critically about these things. And as you pointed out, anything that goes on social media is curated and it's filtered and photoshopped and buffed and it may not be at all real. This may not be what this individual looks like in real life. So I think we have to think more critically about that. There are some social movements. There's a health at every size movement that is promoting body acceptance for individuals in larger bodies so that, yeah, we, we aren't all, our bodies are all unique and we're not all um, born looking or with the genetic template to look like what the cultural ideal may be. And the cultural ideal changes. We know that um, it changes from decade to decade. So what we know about eating disorders is that they're really multiply determined. It's not just the sociocultural impact. It's really genetic loading and other factors that, that might kind of set that off in an individual's life, coexisting other challenges like depression, anxiety, OCD, family response, what, what you learn in families about healthy eating and body image and body acceptance. And I like to think that we all have, we all have a voice in this and we all have something to say. So of, of course, working in this field, I'm careful about not promoting diet culture and, you know, being being compassionate around people who struggle with eating disorders and people who come in all variety of shapes and sizes. And I think that it's, it's not just benign to, to promote that. And good friends of mine know that I, I draw a line around the kind of talking about dieting and size and and things like that, because I, I think it does have an impact. So everybody here and everybody listening to this is in some kind of social connection as a mother or a sister or an aunt or a niece or, and I, I think 
we can maximize those relationships too and take positive self-regard into that and then be compassionate with ourselves when we are failing to kind of meet our own expectations for health or healthy habits or eating habits. I don't think it's an easy answer. It's a good question though. It really brings to light, Barbara, that it, you know, it's not just the patient and the care team. It is the village. Mm -hmm. We do have an opportunity and a responsibility in our communities Mm -hmm. to be the voice of health and the voice of, um, as you say, you know, compassion, you know, with our own selves, but with those around us, but really being that model of, of health and promise um, for all that are within our reach and beyond and sending those messages. Yeah. As we close out our time, Milagro, I, I would like to just ask you if you could offer any words of advice. We've gotten, you know, Barbara's um, sort of professional expertise here. What would you, as a family member, offer to our listeners uh, as a means of approaching or going forward or even just managing, dealing with a loved one or someone you're concerned about? Yeah, and actually, I wanted to touch on what um, you said about a village. Um, I know for my mom, as she grew up and stuff, I think um, the things people said to her, she took really to heart. And after she passed away in 2013, myself, my cousins, and us, we really thought about what we said to each other. For example, like, I hate it when people say, oh, you look so good. It looks like you've lost weight. Well, I looked good before even, and I also lost weight, you know? So I think really, um, just really thinking about what you say to others, even though people say, you know, words don't hurt, they don't hurt, but they, you take it to heart. And it really is something you mentally think about after, why did that person say that to me? What can I do to change it? And um, so I think how we treat each other and how we think of each other as a positive instead of just looking the way we look is something really important. And I think when um, you do find that a family member has an issue with an eating disorder, instead of just judging and say, trying to take control of the situation, how can we get through this together? Because I think really... Being a a team and being a village together is really important because it's very hard to suffer alone. So I think that is probably the biggest advice is to make sure that everyone in your community is on the same page and understands what your goal is. Barbara Milagro, thank you so much for the words of wisdom to hear the personal story and then to understand professionally the aspects, the many complex aspects of this challenging uh, health concern and health disorder. Really, the way you have presented and shared has offered us lots to think about and a, a sort of inspiration that we can do something. We're not just helpless and hopeless. So I thank you for your sharings today. Thank you, Nancy, for talking and highlighting this really important health topic. Thank you for joining us today on The Promise. We look forward to sharing more stories of compassion and caring with you in future episodes. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or 
on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. Please note that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thank you for listening, and at Providence, we see the life in you.